Hey friends, it's Nate. This uh, is an episode we didn't want to be publishing. Um, on early Saturday morning, our sister, Rachel Held Evans, passed away after being in a medically induced coma for a couple weeks following a reaction to antibiotics. Rachel has helped millions of people in their faith remodels. She had the boldness to call out harmful theology, patriarchy, and the gatekeepers of doctrine in evangelicalism. She gave hope to those of us who no longer fit within the conservative theological circles that we used to, when people from those circles were calling us heretics or on a slippery slope or whatever. Rachel helped me personally so much. I began reading her just as my faith remodel was getting underway, and she so accurately described my story of being grateful for the evangelical church because it introduced me to Jesus and and, um, so many other things, but also having a growing sense that there was even more of that Jesus outside of conservative theology and evangelicalism. She often used the title Woman of Valor on Twitter and when speaking to praise a woman who was speaking truth to power, typically the white male gatekeepers of conservative theology, and exhibiting courage and boldness to take a stand for what is good and beautiful. Rachel, thank you for not backing down, for calling us to something more beautiful as a people claiming the title of Christian, for having the boldness to stand for the marginalized people of color and people from other faiths even, for giving hope to millions of people and helping make this process of remodeling your faith a little less lonely and strange. Woman of Valor. Thank you. Almost exactly a year ago, we got the chance to have Rachel on the show, and it was such a wonderful experience getting to meet her and hear her heart and her grace. As a tribute to her life and in memory of her, we're going to replay that episode today, and we have one ask for you. Would you please consider donating to the GoFundMe for Dan and her two children? The link is in the description for this episode. Thank you. Here's the episode with Rachel. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. We started this show because we saw all of the millions of people who are at a point in their spiritual and theological journeys where a lot of what they formerly believed and the way they saw the world just isn't working anymore. This has led to many of you leaving or not fitting into this evangelical world anymore, and some people kind of getting pushed out of that world. So we're on this journey with you. We want to have conversations to help give the Bible back to you and give God back to you. And to say that you don't need to reject God, the Bible, Jesus. You're really just rejecting a version of what you've been handed and that there's so many other ways to think about this thing. And oftentimes these ideas predate some of the ideas we feel like we need to leave behind. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by Rachel Held Evans to chat about lots of things, but also her new book, Inspired, Slaying Giants, Walking on Water, and Loving the Bible Again. She has been such a wonderful help for me personally and so many others with her books like Searching for Sunday and my favorite, Faith Unraveled, just so accurately writing our experiences and helping us not feel crazy, honestly. Uh, So in a lot of ways, Rachel has helped 
give the Bible back to me and, and God back to me in, in a much more beautiful and, and human way. So I'm really thrilled to finally get to talk to you, Rachel. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So you and I have had pretty similar experiences, honestly, in our journeys of faith and how we were raised. And, um, and I'd say mostly good experiences um, and mostly good exceptions to kind of the bad norms of some of the uh, theological world that, uh, that we came from. But eventually these ideas that we hold start to kind of feel limiting and cracks start to show up in that worldview. And I'm just curious for you, what were those first cracks that you started seeing? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think a lot of people can relate to the fact that, you know, I had a pretty decent upbringing and I'm pretty grateful for the family I was raised in was very grace-filled and thoughtful. And so I didn't really find my family uh, limiting, but certainly the broader culture, like the broader evangelical culture, uh, though it was also pretty good to me growing up, um, I did bump into those questions and those cracks in the wall, you know, when I was a young adult. So what I, not everybody can remember the moment their faith started to fall apart, but, but I can, I can actually remember the moment I, I saw that first crack in the wall and it was, uh, I was in college. This is going to make me sound old. I was in college during nine 11. And, uh, so it was just, just after the towers had fallen and the U S was looking at invading Afghanistan, the press kept running all of this old footage from Afghanistan in this documentary called Behind the Veil. And it was about what life is like for women or was like for women in Afghanistan under the rule of the Taliban. And uh, they, they kept showing this footage over and over again, probably to justify the U.S. Uh, taking military action there. Um, but it did open my eyes to just what life was like for other people in other parts of the world. And I'll never forget there was this one scene where um, all of the footage was shot by women themselves, like using cameras under those big burkas that they uh, were wearing. And so there's this kind of shaky home video footage of a woman being uh, dragged out to the middle of a soccer field where the the crowd is there's a big crowd there the stands are filled with people and she's been accused of like adultery or something like that and they just drag her out to the middle of this soccer field and push her down onto the ground and you know put an AK-47 to her head and they shoot and she's executed in front of all these people I later learned her name was Zarmina and uh, she was a mother, a young mother, and, um, you know, she had never had a trial or anything like that. And as I watched this footage get played over and over again, especially that particular scene, the thought that kept going through my mind was everything I had been taught growing up assures me that this woman just went to hell for eternity because she's a Muslim and only evangelical Christians and maybe like a Methodist here and there actually go to heaven um, when they die. And so for me, it was it was the question of religious pluralism. Like, how can it be that only evangelical Christians are uh, saved and going to heaven when they die? Uh, what about all these other people and all these other parts of the world who've either never heard of Jesus or who had lives like this woman's Armina uh, that were already filled with suffering and, um, you know, who really had no opportunity to encounter the gospel as I knew it, you know, am I really supposed to believe that 
the overwhelming majority of people to have lived on this earth never even had a chance at salvation. And that was it. And everything fell apart. So that was the, that was, and then it became, you know, what about evolution? What about science? What about gender and sexuality? Like once you have that one question, like I completely believe in the slippery slope. (laughs) It just sometimes it leads you to some good places. Um, I totally went down the slippery slope of doubt. Like I was, I was questioning everything. Um, yeah. And it, it's been hard, you know, it's isolating, it's lonely to go through that experience a lot. Um, but it's also been pretty powerful too and, and good. Yeah, that's so funny. We actually just did a show on the slippery slope and how oftentimes you have to go through that. I mean, Chris, Christian mysticism talks about, you know, going through the dark night of the soul in order to arrive at this maturity that you couldn't actually get any other way. So that's really cool that that you were talking about that. I, I remember in your book, uh, I think it was Faith Unraveled or what's the other title? That's what it, that's the title, right? That's the new one. Yeah, it used to okay. be, well, it used to be evolving in Monkey Town, but nobody got it, so we changed the oh. title. It's such a I love that title so much better too. It's awesome. I know me too, <laughs> but you know, not everybody is is up on their you know turn of the century courtroom history. Right. Which the illusion is kind of, yeah. So right. <laughs> it's all right. But you talk about in Faith Unraveled that this idea of the Bible being used as a weapon. And I think that's a lot of the people that listen to our show have experienced the Bible in that way. I mean, we talk about that. We talk about it's the sword. And, uh, and so that's this idea of using the Bible as a weapon. And people have felt um, the either the encouragement to use the Bible in that way, or they felt actually the weapon of the Bible used against them. Yeah. And I guess... Yeah, I just want to talk about that a little bit. Why do you think we're tempted to make the Bible into a weapon? Yeah, did you do sword drills growing up? Totally. <laughs> yeah, I would good. totally beat your oh, ass no. at one of those. Now, no. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> we have to do that live. I need an explanation. I oh. I wasn't familiar with any of that world. You didn't do sword drills. No. Oh, what's your background? Uh, kind of like, like loose cultural Christianity growing up, but not nearly as deep as you guys were. <laughs> <laughs> you are not hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> no. <Nope. laughs> no, no, I'll reference, I'll reference sword drills from time to time. And if I'm speaking to like post-evangelical audiences, they're like, oh yeah, you know, and I'm like, let's do a sword drill. And we do a sword drill and it's fun. If I'm speaking to like mainline Protestants, they're like, what? That sounds that sounds violent, you know? (laughs) So a sword drill, um, it's like if you're in Sunday school or vacation Bible school or um, church camp, uh, you like three people or the whole group gets their Bibles out and the leader calls out a verse and they say like, ready swordsman. And you say ready. And then you call, they call out the verse and whoever can find it first and stand up and read the verse wins you got ugly so oh yeah it got very ugly (laughs) and there's ways to kind of cheat too a little bit and like a lot depends on the bibles that you're using so i insist on like standard issue everybody has the same bible otherwise you know there's like tabs and you can't have it yeah you can't have the tab but you also a lot of it was knowing like the context of what they were talking about to know like they're probably going old testament here they're probably going new testament they're probably going paul (laughs) you know like you got to know Bonus points if you've if you've memorized it. You know. I'm realizing now I actually did one of these. I just didn't know that's what it was called. At uh, the first time I ever went to a youth group summer camp, I won a Jars of Clay, their first EP. I I won for some sort of Bible verse recognition thing. Maybe they called it that, and I just don't remember it. What you won without any practice, like. 
Wow. I mean, this was like this was like early days. I think it was probably like if you got New Testament or Old Testament. You yeah, know? that's still really <laughs> impressive. And like winning a Jars of Clay album is like classic. Yeah. <laughs> we must be close in age. Um, wait, what was what were we originally talking? Oh, the Bible is a weapon. Um, besides yeah, yeah, yeah. the sword drill context, but <laughs> yeah, I think that a lot of people, uh, you know, have had that experience and like. You know, for me, it wasn't used particularly violently, but I do recall in high school being told by guys, especially after I would I would give my testimony and do, you know, do a little bit of public speaking in youth group. And I would often be told by guys that it's too bad that I was a girl because I was actually a pretty good speaker. And, you know, the Bible says uh, a woman cannot preach or have authority over a man. So, you know too bad <laughs> you won't actually get to be a pastor or anything like that um so i mean it was used against me in that in those ways it was certainly limiting people used it to limit what i could do as a woman and what i might be called to do um but then i think of like lgbtq people and uh just how much more violently the bible has been used about you know against them and historically against uh people of color and to this day um, the way it was used to justify American slavery. So, you know, the Bible has been used as a weapon in all the wrong ways. Um, and so I think that's one reason why I understand that a lot of people are reluctant to come back to the Bible. You know, if they have broken away from church uh, for their own, you know, health and sanity and, and well-being, uh, or if they have, you know, taken a, a step away from their faith for a time as they work on reconstructing and rebuilding that faith. I get that for a lot of people, the Bible's just, it has so much baggage because it's been uh, used violently against them or cruelly, or maybe just they, you know, all these stories we grew up with that we once loved, you know, like Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, you know, you read that as an adult and it ends with God telling Joshua and his soldiers to kill every man, woman, and child in this city. So you encounter stuff like that and the, the patriarchy and, and, and other issues. And it can be hard to recover that love of scripture, which is what I'm really aiming to do with this latest project is, uh, you know, in, help people engage the Bible with their head and heart fully operating with their doubts, with their questions, with their skepticism, with their ideas and with their creativity. Um, you know, to come back to the Bible and see how it might still be healing and might still still be relevant. Because um, that's kind of been the journey I've been on in the last few years is just really not wanting anything to do with the Bible for a while, uh, even though I was like the world's biggest Bible nerd, to wanting to come back to it. And so I kind of write about the influences that led me there and I try to, to introduce some of that scholarship and some of those interpretive postures creatively through story and poem and, and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think one of the main ideas underlying the book Inspired is, is actually one of the main reasons we started this podcast, which is hmm. us coming back to a belief that the Bible itself is one of the greatest tools we have to de-weaponize the Bible. Yeah. So would you be willing to kind of expound on that, like how you've seen that, where you came kind of back to that uh, belief or, or appreciation for the scriptures? Yeah, yeah. There's a really good book. I think it's called, it's uh, called The Talking Book. And it's about, um, 
the Bible and the African-American experience. And the writer, whose name has just slipped my mind, I reference him in Inspired, uh, talks a lot about that, about how the same scripture that was used to justify the oppression of black people in this country uh, was also used by those people to say, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. You know, that the, the language of scripture, the the imagery of scripture, the the, the arc of justice uh, that we see in scripture, that those have been used to liberate uh, just as much as, as they have been used, uh, as much as the Bible has been used to oppress. And so I've always said that so much depends upon our posture when we go to the Bible. If you are going to the Bible looking for weapons, looking to make war, you will always find ammunition. If you go to the Bible with the posture of looking to heal, you will always find balm. You know, it's there. Um, and so, so much of it is seeking you will find, knocking it will be open to you. You know, so much of what we find in scripture is what we go looking for. And so it's, you know, pretty crucial, I think, that we read scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God's will for this world. Um, Jesus said that to summarize scripture, uh, you would say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on those two commands, uh, Jesus said. So Jesus, who typically answered questions kind of indirectly or with another question, actually answered that question very directly when he was asked, what's the Bible about? <laughs> what's Hebrew scripture about? What's the point of the law and the prophets? He said, love. And so if we go in with a posture of love, uh, we can find verses for liberation and passages and stories for liberation. And if we go with kind of an open mind, if we're willing to read between the lines and to look for those stories of liberation, then we can find them there. That doesn't mean that the troubling stuff just disappears. Uh, and I'm not interested in kind of papering over those deeply troubling stories that reflect misogyny and reflect a culture that was violent and reflect a God who is instructing violence. Like, I'm not interested in explaining that away or um, making it go away or papering over it. But, you know, if we follow the stories of women, if we, you know, look at the, look at things from a, a different perspective, then a lot of times you can still find those little kernels of uh, hope and justice, even in the most troubling passages. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> One thing related to that I've been really excited to ask you about and hear your thoughts is uh, it basically seems like you've, you kind of have this world of, of people, uh, especially a lot of them 
who have either left evangelicalism or kind of disgruntled with it, who who want to apply some sort of filter of love and justice and decency and goodness to how we use the Bible. And then so much of the pushback from the more traditional world is, well, you can't know what love and justice and goodness is apart from what the Bible says it is. So basically, just just shut up and read the Bible. Like <laughs> right. you can't decide for yourself what's what's good and what's not good. Like how have you experienced that? How have you walked through that? Like how do we? Is that just a, a loophole that we're all stuck in? Well, that's so, I'm so glad you asked that because that's like such a common response, and it gets in people's heads too a lot. Like, mm-hmm. well. I feel like I should be bothered by genocide, but, you know, if it's in the Bible, I guess it's okay. (laughs) It's like the way we can talk ourselves out of just what is so clearly right and wrong is it's frankly a little bit scary. But yeah, I was, I've been told this my whole life and I think women get it even more than Mm. men, the accusation that we're just reading emotionally, Mm. you know, well, you can't let your emotions affect how you read the Bible as if they're not letting their emotions or, you know, you can't let the culture tell you how to read the Bible as Mm -hmm. if, you know, white dudes doing theology in America, that like, as if that's not coming from a cultural perspective. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things. We have to throw out the notion of unbiased anyway, like nobody is coming to the Bible with a blank slate. Like we all bring our culture, our experiences, our past, our nationalities, Um, our socioeconomic backgrounds. We bring all of that with us when we read the Bible. So nobody is engaging this objectively or without bias. Um, And all of us read it, frankly, emotionally. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's an emotional decision to say, well, I'm just not bothered by genocide if it's in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, No, you should be bothered by it no matter where it shows up. Um, And, you know, I think secondly, I think God gave us minds and a conscience and a heart and emotions, all of which Jesus uh, experienced when, uh, when God was incarnated in flesh, God felt emotions and God felt angry and God, you know, experienced life as a human being. And so I, we're not meant to suspend all of that stuff when we come to the Bible. We're not meant to just check our brains and our reason and our emotions at the door. I think the Bible invites an emotional, engaged response, and it invites questions and uncertainty. You know, this it's just trying to make it simple, trying to make it untroubling is just an exercise in futility, and you only end up lying to yourself and to everyone around you. If you're bothered by the stories of genocide, if you're bothered by stories that reflect a, a deeply misogynistic and patriarchal culture, which is just the culture from which the Bible emerged, like you end up just kind of being this fake shadow version of yourself. And I don't think God wants a fake shadow version of you. I think God wants you fully engaged in the text and in the story of the Bible and the stories of the Bible. So yeah, I just, I find it unacceptable when people say, um, you know, you just have to, you just have to believe it without question. Um, I don't know. Like that's a, you're kind of setting yourself up to, to be exploited by authoritarian leaders. If that's your posture towards everything about faith is why well, I just have to believe it. Whatever the pastor says, I have to believe, uh, whatever the, the, the most shallow sort of basic reading of this text, that's just what I have to believe. 
it's just no way to live, you know, just sort of disintegrated to the point that your head and your heart are not engaged in your faith. Um, that's unacceptable to me. I don't think that it, I don't think God wants that. And so a big turning point for me too in engaging all this was encountering Jewish interpretations of the Bible because Jews approach the Bible completely differently than than Christians do. There's just a much more there's much more of an attitude of it's okay to ask questions and ooh look there's a contradiction here. How do we resolve that? Should we try to resolve that? You know what? There's a story missing here. Let's make one up and fill it in. Like the Jews just have this this posture that the Bible's meant to start conversations, not end conversations. And that that part of the beauty of Scripture is that it gets you talking with people, it gets you debating and discussing and imagining, and that that's that's part of the magic of Scripture is that it isn't easy to understand. It's not simple. Um, so yeah, like reading just Jewish interpretations of Hebrew scripture completely changed my posture towards all of scripture. And it's important to remember Jesus was engaging scripture as a Jew, as was Paul. So they had the same sort of attitude and posture towards the Bible that, you know, these passages can mean different things. And um, yeah, so that kind of unlocked some of that for me and also gave me permission to engage the Bible with, with my skepticism, with my questions, um, and even with my revulsion, you know, in, fully engaged because there's just some stories you can't read without them bothering you. And I think they're meant to bother you. You know, I, I mean, I think mm-hmm. there's something wrong with you <laughs> or, or you've, you've convinced yourself of, of sort of a fake faith. If, if you think that God just wants you to always accept everything as it's been presented to you. I really resonated. It was in uh, your chapter on war stories, uh, mostly talking about the Old Testament conquest narratives, especially like you mentioned, God telling Joshua to to wipe out Jericho. And uh, and you talk about, you use the words uh, disintegrated, fractured, uh, fragmented. And those words are words that have really resonated with me in terms of uh, almost like what's asked of us mm. within evangelicalism psychologically. Yes. That... Uh, <laughs> that I've started to reflect on a lot, I think has way deeper symptoms Mm -hmm. than just the weird things we can get ourselves to believe, but actually the kind of people we become when we think we're supposed to live fragmented lives. Yes. This is like, like not to, this is the first time I've I've said this anywhere, but this is totally what I want to write the next book about is that Mm -hmm. the, the way that we're asked, like exactly like you said, to sort of disintegrate ourselves, to, to check out emotionally and intellectually, because, you know, that brings us into territory of doubt and questioning. Um, when, you know, I, I would integrate the work of Brene Brown into all of this. You can't selectively numb yourself like that. If you start numbing yourself to the atrocities that you encounter in Scripture, you're going to numb yourself to the atrocities that we see around the world. You know, if you teach yourself to be calloused about injustice when you encounter it in the Bible, you're going to be calloused about injustice when you encounter it in the world. When you teach yourself to check out emotionally from worship because, you know, maybe you're you're not feeling the happy worship song that day, but you force yourself to feel that, you know, you end up checking out emotionally from the rest of your life. And so you're absolutely right. This is like a new little soapbox of mine is that when our faith leaders or when our churches, uh, when our religious culture asks us to disintegrate like that, to 
check out emotionally and, and intellectually and to just accept what we're told. Uh, we start to do that with our families and with the world. We start to just check out because that's the only way we've been taught to survive instead of really engaging our doubts. And so, I mean, I would just say that, no, oh, God's big enough. If, if God is who we think God is, then, you know, God can handle you bringing your full self doubts, questions, uh, belief, unbelief, um, all your full self to your faith. God's not asking for half of you and the rest of it checked out. Um, I mean, I think about Job, you know, which is Job is one of my favorite it used to be one of my least favorite stories in the Bible because I was like, what the heck? Like, God's kind of being an asshole here. Like, this is, seems unnecessary, all this these trials that fall upon Job just so that God and Satan can, you know, win this little fight that they've got. Anyway, but, you know, then you start to interpret it more as like a, a you know, a story than kind of a, a fable meant to illustrate the problem of evil and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, where was I going with this? Oh, Job. I mean, Job is, at the end of the day, uh, it's Job's friends who tried to find answers to all his problems and explanations for why he was suffering, who were quoting scripture quite nicely. They're the ones who get uber rebuked by God. <laughs> and Job is the one who ends up getting blessed in the end. Uh, and it was Job who said, I desire to argue with God. I love that. Uh, you know, and in other stories, like it's Jacob who wrestled with God, who was named Israel because of that wrestling. The entire identity of the nation of Israel was rooted in the concept of wrestling with God. And so throughout scripture, we have example after example after example of the people who are closest to God are the people who wrestled with God, who struggled, who weren't willing to bring only half of themselves to the equation but desire to argue with God, who negotiate with God, who question and doubt and struggle. So yeah, I, you know, this, I don't like, I don't like the person I become when I start to just pretend like I believe things I don't believe or pretend to be okay with things I'm not okay with. Uh, that's, that's not really Rachel. <laughs> and that's not a, a fully integrated and healthy way to live. And certainly not a fully integrated and healthy way to experience your faith. It just means at the end of the day, it means we have to be willing to embrace risk. And I think we are very risk averse people. And, um, but faith is a risk. Like you could go down that rabbit hole and find out that none of this is true, or you could go down that rabbit hole and stop believing. And so, yeah, you know, every day it's a risk that that might happen, but any kind of healthy relationship, anything that's important in your life involves risk. It's risky to have kids, you know, now I have to worry about these two-year-olds, all three of us are chasing around two-year-olds just trying to keep them alive, you know, <laughs> to love somebody as much as we love these kids, knowing that at any moment they could be taken away. Like, oh, that's a risk, but it's so worth taking. Like anything that's worth doing in life is risky uh, but it's worth the risk. And so I just think the same is true for faith. I think um, I can I can hear, there's always this side of me that can hear like the, the pushback or can hear the, the voices <laughs> right. or maybe it's maybe it's like what I would have said. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think the fear is that we're, you're going to get to a place where everything is held so openly that you don't know what truth is anymore. And there's no, um, it's nice and clean to be able to say, let's just go to the Bible and that'll be our answer for everything. And so I, it's it's a lot harder to say, 
so you're saying we don't have the Bible anymore? Like it's not it's not what we always thought it was. So then what? <laughs> right. Who determines what anything means anymore? Right. Yeah. I mean, and then and that's where it's like you have to kind of let the Bible be what the Bible is because like if if you think the Bible is going to be the place where we go to all get on the same page, <laughs> you're in for a big disappointment. <laughs> yeah, I love what you talk about. You talk about and inspired the idea of it. It's not a magic iBook. Right. Yeah. Trying to get this like if you just cross your eyes enough and study this thing enough, you'll get to one unified you know, idea of what the Bible says on, on this or whatever. It's more like a cover band, right? Like, yeah, they, yeah. They're playing, they're playing all the, all the, yeah. Talk about that. A We're little all bit. like riffing off of this, the, th- these, these songs that we find in the Bible and everybody's kind of riffing in different ways. Like, yeah. Cause if you, if you go, if you go to the Bible thinking like, well, this will get everybody on the same page, like just look at the proliferation of denominations just within Protestantism, which is, has its basis in sola scriptura. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, people are going to go to the Bible and find different meanings there. Um, so, you know, the notion that, well, I just rely on the Bible. It's just like, it's a great way of just shutting down a conversation. Cause I get this at least once a day on social media, somebody says, well, I just believe the Bible. And it, it, it it's, there's an arrogance to it too, because mm-hmm. it goes back to that myth of objectivity as if they're coming to the Bible completely objectively, you know, they're not bringing any of their own baggage or questions or their own culture to it. It's kind of like when people say that, um, like when black women do theology, they're doing contextual theology, right? Mm-hmm. You know, well, if a black woman has an interpretation of the Bible or a black female scholar, then she's doing contextual theology. But like a white dude at, you know, Princeton, he's not, you know, as if that's not a context as well. So there's just, there's an arrogance to that too, that, well, I just believe the Bible. Which version, which interpretation, which you know, which hermeneutical posture are you taking towards the Bible? Um, and that's not to say that, oh, well, the Bible can mean anything. Um, you know, there are principles of interpretation that are wise to use and that careful people studying scripture are going to use. You know, we should look at the context. We should see what else was written at the time. And we should look at the language and how it's used elsewhere in scripture. We should, you know, there are principles of good interpretation that I wholly embrace and celebrate and want to teach regular people how to use. Um, But even with all of those working, you're still going to have some differences of opinion about how to interpret texts that were written centuries and centuries ago in cultures vastly different than the ones that we're in. Uh, you know, we're, it's, there's just not going to be a simple reading that emerges from that. And the trick is just deciding that that's okay. It's okay. Uh, so much of the hand-wringing and stress about this is because people are wanting the Bible just to be something it's not. It's not an answer book. It's not an owner's manual. It's not a position paper for your political views. It's not just this uh, list of rules and what's right and what's wrong. You know, it's most, it's poetry, it's letters, it's stories, it's songs, it's ancient philosophy and proverbs. You know, it's, it's all of these genres that just don't fit nicely into bullet points. And so we can freak out about that and act like that's a problem and try to force the Bible to be something that it's not. Or we can embrace it, embrace the Bible that God gave us and say that, you know, well, maybe the reason God gave us mostly stories is because stories can communicate truth in a way that a bullet point or position paper can't. Um, And that maybe some of the play and the questions and the 
dialogue that that invites, maybe that's kind of part of the point, you know, like if the Bible were an answer book, like we really wouldn't have much to talk about, you know, like with God or with each other, it'd be all so clear cut, you know, but instead we're invited into this centuries old dynamic ongoing conversation with God and with one another precisely because the Bible is not always easy to understand. Um, And that conversation that we get to have with one another, that's part of what it means to be in a community of faith. Like being a person of faith isn't just about being right. You know, being a person of faith is about being in a community. And the Bible helps us have that community because it gives us something to talk about. It gives us something to wrestle with. So, yeah, I mean, it's, like I said, there's principles of interpretation that are useful to apply and that help keep us on course. And as Christians, I think that we're called to read all of Scripture through the lens of Christ. That doesn't mean you make Old Testament passages mean something they don't mean, but, um, you know, that we're called to have that posture of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, reading everything through the lens of Jesus and knowing that Jesus is the culmination of all these stories, that changes how we interpret things, and that can get us kind of on the same page on some certain Uh, doctrines that are important. But trying to force the Bible to be an answer book that brings us all to the same conclusion is an exercise in futility. Yeah, you, you mentioned story a minute ago, and that was uh, one of my favorite parts in Inspired was, well, actually, it's, it seems like almost the theme throughout the whole book is is the power of story and different kind of stories and how they form and, and shape us all. And in one section you wrote, it's important to identify and unpack these stories, the good, the bad, the true, and the half true, for they explain so much of what we believe and how we behave. I just, uh, I think there's so much there. Can you expound a bit on that of like the power of story that we tell ourselves and the stories that we grow up telling? Yeah, yeah. That's from uh, the first chapter, I think, the origin stories. Mm -hmm. So the way I arrange the book is um, every other chapter, I look at a different genre in scripture. So we have origin stories, uh, deliverance stories, resistance stories, uh, war stories, uh, gospel stories, and on and on. Um, And some of them are kind of, I loosely categorize them together, um, mostly as a way of making a point about how uh, what we encounter in scripture are various genres of uh, literature. And when we understand those genres, we understand better what the Bible's, you know, what the point of these stories might be and how they might apply to us today. And then in between each of those chapters, I do like a creative retelling of a familiar Bible passage. So like a screenplay around the story of Job a poem that's an ode to the beast of revelation, you know, just kind of some fun stuff to get, get people's interest and intrigue and uh, just to make it a fun job retelling was my favorite, by the way. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> I had so much fun writing that. This is the most fun I've ever had writing a book. Cause I got to be creative and um, yeah, that was, that was super fun. But uh, so you're quoting from the origin stories chapter where I talk about the genre of origin stories and how uh, stories of our origin whether they're the story about how grandma and grandpa met or the first Thanksgiving. Uh, these stories really are infused in our culture and our lives in such a way that they, they help us understand who we are. And they're usually kind of a mix of truth and a little bit of fiction and um, embellishment. But, and they get told and retold in ways that, that 
uh, help us understand the present. Um, and so when we understand that, that that's the kind of story that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are, it helps us understand where the author's going with that, where the writers of Scripture are going with those stories. So I make the case, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who will disagree with me on this, but I make the case based on what most biblical scholars uh, say about Genesis 1, that this is an ancient origin story that's meant to stand in contrast to Babylonian creation stories uh, where they talk about you know God, the gods arguing and, and striving with one another and creating the world out of bloodshed and human beings are the are made from the blood of their enemies and you know they have these temples where uh, they now reside in Babylon and so the story of Genesis 1 is really uh, uh, meant to stand in contrast like you know it was written by people who didn't have a temple whose temple had been destroyed uh, and so it concludes with a God who doesn't need war who doesn't, you know, make people out of the blood of uh, enemies, but um, but makes people uh, in God's own image to be emissaries to creation, and then culminates with a God who doesn't need a temple of made of stone to worship in, but a God who has made the whole cosmos a temple uh, and rests in that whole cosmos of a temple on the seventh day. So that's a lot of information right there, but. My point is, when we understand you know, how stories operate in our lives and in our culture, we can understand that you know, this, these stories were meant to operate in the lives and in the cultures of other folks um, at another time. And when we understand that, I actually think the meaning of it becomes richer. Like to me, instead of seeing Genesis 1 as, this is a story about how the world came to be, and it's a scientific and historical text. Like, I don't know, that just doesn't do as much for me as, like, this is a story about how ours is a God who doesn't need a temple. You know, ours is a God who rules over the whole cosmos. Like, it just, it it has more resonance to me in that way, and it's truer to me in that way. It seems truer to the genre, truer to the culture at the time, truer to me now and to us now. Um, Yeah, I kind of went everywhere with that. But yeah, stories are important. (laughs) (laughs) I think part of the reason it it really uh, stood out to me is one, I think culturally we don't think about our own formation in that way. We don't think about the stories that we all tell. And specifically, uh, I had just this last week watched a a lecture by Dr. Willie Jennings. I'm not sure if you saw it. It was called Can White People Be Saved? Uh, No, that sounds good. It was really profound. Um, But it was largely uh, structured on thinking of, of white supremacy and all the racism in American history as a false story about whiteness. And so he he was using that same idea. It's this issue, whatever you want to call it, of racism, white supremacy. It's a story that's been embedded, you know, in our in our psyche for so long. And really what he was calling attention to is the way that that story has been looped together and linked with the Christian story of the gospel oh. in these in this way that's so hard for people to determine what's a story what's the story of whiteness in America and what's the story of yes. Jesus. Yeah. And uh so I guess I uh, I love that way of framing it, and I would love to hear your thoughts on kind of some of your own experience, what you've learned in terms of deconstructing your story, coming to recognize 
what stories we're living under, all that. Yeah. What was the name of the lecture? It's called Can White People Be Saved? Oh, my gosh. How have I not seen this? I'm writing it down. Sorry, everybody. Can white people be saved? Because that's like exactly what I'm trying to get at, too, with that. Mm-hmm. The way that, that stories shape us. Like, we're so unconscious about that sometimes. Like, we don't think about the fact. Like, the story of the first Thanksgiving is a good example. Like, we have a lot of nostalgia around that story. But, you know... You know, how much of it is actually factual and how much of it, you know, how have we allowed that story, you know, white folks allowed that story to shape our understanding of what our presence in the new, in the quote unquote new world uh, meant, um, you know, because if that story is told by uh, indigenous people, it's going to be told a bit differently. And so, yeah, we are, we just inhabit these stories so much, just like the, the lecturer was saying, we inhabit these stories so much the 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 work of disentangling what's true from what's what not true um is is the the work of our lives really is and so much of who we understand ourselves to be how i understand myself as um you know a woman named rachel a good biblical name that has a root in a story you know how i understand myself as an alabama crimson tide fan <laughs> has all these roots in stories and you know the the blocked kick and you know all that kind of stuff how i understand myself like as a white person that's a lot of of story like you said behind that um some of it true some of it myth some of it mixing with with what's good and some of it makes, you know, some of it evil, um, you know, how I understand myself and the world as a Christian, all of these things have their roots in a story. Somebody told me at some point, uh, somebody told me a story about the pioneers and I, I believed that story. Uh, it was a one-sided story, but I, 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 um, took that to heart in some way and it formed my identity. So yeah, being aware of how story shapes our identity uh, is so important for better or for worse um, to understanding um, ourselves and, and why we behave the way that we behave, why certain injustices are allowed to flourish, uh, why, yeah, why, why we have the conflicts that we have with our friends and with our family and why we have the conflicts that we have with the world. Stories tell us, our origin stories tell us who to hate. <laughs> you know, our origin stories tell us, you know, think of, think of all the lore that surrounds the American Revolution. All those stories about, you know, this is just people that were pissed that they were being taxed, but we make it into like this, you know, this really honorable, amazing, glorious story. Um, because that's kind of what we do as humans to, to, to survive and to make sense of our lives. So yeah, that I, it's not like this is something you can just beat or overcome in some way, um, nor should it be, because uh, a lot of those stories are really valuable, but it's just something to be aware of, like be aware of the stories that you inhabit and the stories that have shaped you, um, if you're aware of them, then you can, I think, see more clearly uh, the way forward and, and um, what, how to take what's best from them and perhaps leave parts of it behind. I love that connection. I wish I could have heard that lecture before I wrote the book because I could have used that as a like prime example. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's the story of publishing right there. Like, oh, <laughs> I should have done this. I should have included that. It's just like it never stops. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Hey, friends, just a 20-second break here to ask a quick question. 
Kim and I get excited to make this show each week, and we are so encouraged by all the emails we get from people sharing how the show makes them feel just a little bit less crazy. So if this show has helped you and you want to help us make it, it'd be super helpful if a few of you just gave a couple dollars each month. And if that's something you could do, you can go to give.almostheretical.com. Any amount helps pay the costs of this show. Okay, we really hate it when a podcast interrupts us to ask for money too. So back to the show. I guess uh, some b- bouncing from that, uh, one of the, you know, besides racism and the story of whiteness, I think one of the stories that you've tried to confront head on, especially in recent years, is the story of patriarchy and and sexism and the role of, of gender in Christianity. And just love to hear kind of like what your experience has been uh, tackling that whole subject within this evangelical culture and what you've learned. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. You just keep, you keep learning. <laughs> and then you also kind of stop caring that <laughs> you just kind of stop caring that people are going to disagree with you. Like, you know, well, women shouldn't preach. Well, you know what they are. So, you know, it's, <laughs> they are, and it's great. Um, yeah. I mean, I think this is another example of kind of like use, you can use scripture to oppress or you can use it to, to liberate. And John Piper's got this whole line about how Christianity has a masculine feel and how Christianity is a masculine faith. And it's like, really, dude? Because like, I would try reading through the Gospels one more time before I would say something like that. Because you think just about the fact that when God became a human being, God was carried in a woman, you know, God was nursed by a woman, God was burped by and cuddled by a woman and in the company of women. And then God befriended women and uh, Jesus relied on women for the financing of his ministry. Uh, When all the male disciples left his side, it was women who stuck by Christ on the cross. Uh, Whenever Christ was at his most vulnerable, it was in the company of women. Uh, and I think that that matters. Like, it doesn't mean women are better than men. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but it means that this notion that Christianity is masculine is just not rooted in the story of Scripture. And that women were the ones, the first to declare the full gospel that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. I don't think it's an accident that Jesus appeared first to women. Uh, and of course, they ran to the disciples who didn't believe them <laughs> until they saw it for themselves. Like classic um yeah but yeah so it's it's yeah, it's just an example again you know when people try to say well uh, if people on both sides you have folks like john piper saying that the bible you know is gives christianity a masculine feel and it's you know essentially about and for men uh, but you also have folks you know who are perhaps you know anti Christian or, you know, um, know, super militant atheists and whatnot who would say, well, the Bible is just misogynistic. Well, you know, take another look. (laughs) Both both sides on that need to take another look at scripture um, because I don't I don't think that's a story that we're given, especially once we get to the Gospels, where so much of the most important. I mean, it matters that when God became flesh, uh, God relied so much on the presence of women and uh, yeah, so it's it's a lot again about the posture that you're taking as you approach scripture. If you want to find verses to relegate women, you'll find them. But um, yeah, if you want to find verses to uplift women, like another example is um, 
in the epistles. You know, you have one reference in one epistle to written to one specific church saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And that's a letter attributed to Paul. Paul probably didn't actually write it. That's a whole other, whole other conversation. But elsewhere in other epistles, and including those that we know were authored by Paul, we have examples of women who are teaching and leading. You know, Lydia, Priscilla, Junia, uh, clearly celebrated by Paul as what he calls them co-workers in the work of the gospel. So obviously that wasn't meant for all women at all times and all people at all times. It was clearly meant, in my mind, pretty clearly meant for a specific context. Um, so this is another example, too, of taking instructions that were directed to specific people in a specific context in a specific culture and trying to apply them to everybody, everywhere, at all times. You know, it's, it's always ironic to me that people like Piper don't enforce a head covering rule in their church, even though uh, in the letter to the Corinthians, I think it's 2 Corinthians, you know, Paul's pretty insistent that women, every woman in every church he knows covers their head. <laughs> so, you know, we're all selective and you can learn a lot about a person based on how they select. And if they select in such a way that oppresses people, probably not doing it right. Yeah, that's that's so true. Um, I wanted to, to get to this, but uh, so Trevin Wax of the Gospel Coalition in a response to, I'm not sure what which book it was, I don't remember now, of yours, uh, he said, some millennials, I think talking about you. That's gracious. I'm going to take that as a compliment because I'm just barely a millennial. So <laughs> thanks, Trevin. That's right. I'm one of the young ones. <laughs> uh, like many from generations before us, want the church to become a mirror, a reflection of our particular preferences, desires, and dreams. But other millennials, I think he's talking about himself, want a Christianity that shapes and changes our preferences, desires, and dreams. Uh, I'd like to hear your response to that, because I think a, a lot of us that are now outside of this kind of evangelical reformed world, that really bugs us when we hear something like that. Oh, yeah. What would you, what would you say to people that are bugged by, by that perception? Well, that they have every right to be bugged because like the, the person's not going after like your argument or your thoughts. They're going they're they're accusing you of of, of motives, of bad motives. You just want to make Christianity in your own image. You know, I get that a lot. Or I just, you're just basing it all on emotions. <laughs> I hear that all the time. Uh, and it's it's really insulting too, because like, frankly, I've done a lot of freaking homework on this. You know, I have spent hours immersed in biblical commentaries. I don't come to these viewpoints uh, because they come naturally to me. I actually do work to to mm. find a lot of these ideas. Um, you know, it's not like I read Genesis one and I was like, oh, I see that this is clearly, you know, much more likely to be a reflection of an ancient Babylonian conversation around the nature of God and temples. Like, that's not <laughs> something that you know I just happened upon. You, I worked for that um, and studied for that because I love the Bible, <laughs> because I love I love Jesus, and um, you know I want. I want my faith to be, you know, an engaged faith, not a checked out faith. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, I think that, you know, anybody who says that it's really hard. I know that we all have the, I think we, unlike Trevin, I would say that we all have the impulse to go to scripture and to go to faith to and try to force it into a mirror um, that reflects our own uh, biases and desires. So that's every single one of us goes to the Bible and approaches our faith with that instinct, because that's part of what it is to be human. We crave uh, affirmation of what we already believe. 
So it's not unique to sort of postmodern, post-evangelical millennials to find affirmation for what they are inclined to believe. It's just, you know, a lot of these reformed guys who only read reformed guys, only read white, other white men from America, like, they think that they're not doing the same thing, but they are. We're all doing that. I mean, the thing, though, that we all have in common, too, is that when you get to the Gospels and you get to the teachings of Jesus, it shuts us all up. You cannot make that into something that you want to hear, especially when we're talking about relatively privileged uh, Americans. You cannot go to the Beatitudes and read, blessed are the poor, and cursed are you who are rich. Uh, blessed are the hungry, and woe to you who have enough now. Uh, you cannot go to that without your basic assumptions about life being challenged. That challenges all of our assumptions about what it means to be blessed. You cannot read and encounter Jesus' teachings about enemy love uh, and, and, and be confirmed in what you already want to believe. No, I don't want to love my enemies. I don't even want to love like the guy who's being a jerk to me on Twitter, you know, like that's not even a real enemy. And I, I can't muster up love for that person um, or to give without expecting anything in return or to when you're asked to walk a, a mile to walk to like Jesus kind of busts up any of our attempts to go and force Christianity into a mirror that reflects what we want. And I just think that it's true for all of us. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to the Bible to look just for affirmation for what I believe. I mean, I am, but I'm trying to train myself not to be. <laughs> and the best way, the, the thing that just trips me up every time, because I do this all the time. I go to, <laughs> this happens to me on a fairly regular basis where I'm going to the New Testament to find ammo against somebody, you know, like, oh, I'm going to Matthew 25 this guy, you know, <laughs> about immigration, you know, and then I start reading Matthew 25 for myself and I'm like, oh, shit, <laughs> like this is for me. This is convicting mm-hmm. for me. I was going to use it as ammo and here it is messing with my worldview. So I guess I feel like, yeah, Trevin, I agree. I just... I disagree that that's something that like people like me are doing and that you're not. <laughs> and I think that we actually both have the same um, antidote. <laughs> and that's just actually engaging the Gospels and actually engaging the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ because they completely throw you off. There's, yeah, they don't affirm what I, are, what I want to believe ever. <laughs> if they affirmed what I already want to believe, like they would say, you know, Twitter is an excellent place in which to engage your anger. <laughs> um, it's okay to check out with what your country's doing as far as war and, and racism. Just check out and, and, you know, be happy. It doesn't, doesn't say that. So, yeah, we're all looking for affirmation, and the Bible does an excellent job of upturning that. So, Rachel, you mentioned a minute ago uh, that at this point, it's it's pretty easy for you to brush off the criticism, brush off the flack you get from kind of the evangelical establishment and the, the gatekeepers of that establishment. But a lot of the people that we're in relationship, a lot of the people that listen to the show, they're not there yet. And it's an incredibly scary and painful uh, place to be uh, kind of under the, the threat. So even we just got this, uh, this email this week uh, from a woman talking about her story with her husband. 
Mm. He said, for us, gender roles were the first thing we started to question. It started when we realized that we were far happier than everyone else we knew in marriage, precisely because we were bad complementarians <laughs> who didn't actually have hierarchy in our relationship. Now we're fully egalitarian, but we're still closeted be- about it because coming out would mean being ousted from the church as heretics. Oh We've gosh. seen it happen over this issue, and that's currently pretty scary for us. If my pastors knew I was listening to you guys, I think they would be questioning my salvation. And our question then is, then how can we heal from spiritual abuse? We're still so torn about church. Sometimes it feels like they love us, and other times it feels so unsafe. It's really confusing. Oh, so yeah. I know you, you've you heard these stories. You've lived these stories. <laughs> you probably hear uh, from people in, in these kind of situations all the time. Like what wisdom, what what encouragement, what advice do you have for people who are still in it and feeling all this, these mixed emotions and pressures. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is just, you're not alone. You are not alone. <laughs> it might feel like that, um, and it is incredibly isolating when, uh, when you might be the only person at your church, or you think you're the only person at your church who is questioning certain things or living in a different way than uh, other folks are consuming heretical or nearly heretical podcasts like like the one that we are listening to Hmm. um yeah and I've been in that place too where I was I mean I very clearly remember standing up in church worshiping and everybody else around me is singing with gusto and joy hands raised in the air and thinking I'm the only person who doesn't believe this anymore uh and that's so scary it's so scary because Unfortunately, so many of our faith communities are built around the premise that you belong as long as you believe. Like, uh, you get to be a part of this community as long as you sign up for uh, believing these certain things. Um, Some of them are spoken and some of them are unspoken. Sometimes the unspoken ones are the hardest to, to manage. And so the thought that goes through your mind is, will these people still be my friends if they find out that I think differently? Uh, will these people still bring me casseroles, you know, when the family is sick, will they still show up in my life? Will they still pray with me and care about me if it turns out I don't believe everything that they believe? And I mean, I really think the health of one of a faith community is measured by how people do respond when somebody is honest about their beliefs. But in the meantime, it's so scary and so isolating because people have asked me, you know, what's the hardest part about doubt? And a lot of times they assume that it's the estranged relationship with God. And I've never felt like that. I've always felt like the hardest part of doubt is the estranged relationship you have with the people around you, with your community, your church, your friends, your closest friends. There are still relationships that to this day are in need of repair in my life because of my doubts and my and friends who um, couldn't be who saw me as quote a bad influence uh, because of what I believe. Dear friends that whose whose loss you know the, the loss of which really still stings and hurts uh, pretty badly today. And not that I was completely innocent and in all that too. Sometimes I think I I'm the type of person who kind of. I don't really hide my doubts. I kind of evangelize them. So <laughs> I might have pushed a little too hard uh, with, in some of those relationships. But still, it, it, they're fractured and in need of repair and still haven't been repaired. And then there are other relationships, just as a to throw out a line of hope. Um, a, a year ago, I heard from uh, a young woman who I was very close with in college who kind of distanced herself from me when I started writing about my 
doubts and, you know, writing about these crises of faith I was having. She just didn't want to associate with me. And I felt like that was happening, but I wasn't sure. And she wrote me a letter about a year ago saying that um, she was like, I just, I wasn't there for you when I should have been there for you. Um, And it was because I was scared. Uh, I was scared about the questions that you were asking um, and what they might mean for my faith. But then she had had a rough year where things had not gone the way they were supposed to go. And so she found herself asking those same questions. And then she she found my books and was reading, you know, all this stuff like, oh, Rachel went through this too. Um, and so sometimes people kind of come around eventually and, and, and go on their own journey. But, but in the meantime, it's lonely. It's scary. People have every right to feel what they feel about it. Um, but I will just say that you're not alone. There are other people out there asking the same questions. There are probably people in your church in the same position um, who are perhaps also kind of afraid to speak up. So um, you're not alone and take courage. Uh, you can you can divulge things a little bit at a time with the people you trust and how they respond, frankly, tells you what kind of friends they are. And that's a lot of us avoid having those conversations because we don't want to find that out. We're kind of scared of what we might uncover. But you might also be surprised by what you uncovered too. That was my experience. Uh, some people turned on me pretty hard and it hurt really bad. But then other people, people I never would have expected would say something like, oh my gosh, me too. (laughs) So, you know, you're not alone and take courage and maybe try having some conversations with people and just see what happens. Uh, You'll learn a lot. It's a risk, but again, you know, everything worth doing in life is a risk. Yeah. That's been the coolest thing about doing this show is the, I guess the emails and the people that come, I mean, some of these are old friends. Some of these are people I haven't talked to in years and a lot are people we don't even know just reaching out and saying me too. I'm in the same boat. I don't have anyone else to talk to about this. Um, And so it's just really cool to see these little pockets and so many other podcasts and so many other, you know, authors and just people in that we don't even know about that are forming these little communities of people Mm -hmm. that um, are also experiencing these same things and walking through these same things. It's just really cool. And it's really encouraging. Um, and yeah, there's, there's millions of people that are in the same boat. And I think going forward, and this is what I sort of want to talk about, but I feel like going forward, it's, that's going to be the majority, um, are, are the ones who have gone through this and things just aren't the, the perfect kind of, um, doctrine that they had doesn't, doesn't work anymore. It doesn't actually work in the real world anymore and they can't hold it any longer. So I guess, I guess I just kind of want to talk for a sec just about like, where do you see this going? I mean, what do you think we're going to be talking about with our, you know, kids and grandkids 50 mm. years down the road, American evangelicalism? Like, is it going to, is it, <laughs> is it done? Oh, gosh. Um, is it I just a, know. you know, is it just <laughs> a matter of time? You know, you talk about in Faith Unraveled that our faith always evolves. It always changes from the point where we're using the Bible to defend slavery. We adapted. We It changed. And now people are, it's like, well, obviously the Bible's not talking, you know, pro-slavery, even though the verses are still there in <laughs> yeah. this text. So, yeah, I just want to, interested to hear your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, and those verses are always in the same context as wives submit your husbands. Like, that's either preceded or followed by slaves obey your masters. So why some people... And- <laughs> Yeah, like, why are we keeping the wifely submission and throwing out the slavery? Anyway, that's a whole other, (laughs) that's a tangent that, look at me, walking away from it. Um, Yeah, I I, I don't know. I don't, I can't make any more predictions about, like, 
the future of evangelicalism. I mean, I thought I kind of understood what might be happening there, and then the Trump thing happened, and I was like, I don't know. Uh, I'm dealing with a lot of anger (laughs) around that, too, and so I'm kind of like, let it burn, you know. (laughs) But that's probably not a a Christ-like posture to have. Um, The only thing I'll say is that, like, when we talk about the future of the church, you know, a lot of times this is just a bunch of white folks kind of wringing their hands and uh, talking about themselves when really the center of Christianity has shifted from the global West to the global South and East. And so the future of Christianity, it looks Asian, it looks brown. You know, it doesn't look like American Christianity, which is probably in a lot of ways a good thing. Uh, Also raises some challenges um, around things like gender and sexuality and, and, you know, how different cultures approach those things. And, um, and so, yeah, but I think the main thing is if you want to talk about the future of both evangelicalism and broader Christianity, um, it's not white. Uh, that's where the numbers are going down and the numbers are going up in, uh, immig- immigrant communities here in the U S um, and in the global South and East. And so, you know, folks who are spending all of their time reading dead white Calvinists <laughs> might consider uh, reading of some people of color and some people from non-Western traditions because that's, that's actually where uh, the population of Christianity is growing. So that's what the future, you know, kind of looks like. What that means exactly is probably the work of, of other people. I'm not going to try and speculate. I don't know what's going to happen with American, you know, white American Christianity. I think, or white, particularly white American evangelicalism, it's pretty, pretty compromised at this point with the stubborn allegiance to Trump. Uh, most people associate evangelicalism with him now. So the future, yeah. I think, kind of looks like his future, which... I'm not predicting is going to be a great one. So, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, I have so many mixed feelings because I'm so angry right now at that, about that alliance that I, I can veer into sort of this, ha you deserve it attitude. But then I remember that, you know, it was evangelical Christianity for all its faults was what introduced me to Jesus. You know, like this is my spiritual, um, these are my spiritual parents, my, my, this is where my faith was first shaped and formed. And I don't want it to just go down in a big dumpster fire. <laughs> you know, I want to see it redeemed and, and restored. Um, but, you know, we're resurrection people. So, uh, you know, sometimes the church needs a little death and resurrection for the next step. Yeah, I think there's some things that need to die about uh, American Christianity in particular. And uh, if they die, then the good news is... We believe in resurrection and who knows what God is up to. Um, but yeah, I look kind of to the to the margins too for the future as well. You know, the, the folks who are preaching and speaking from the margins, um, mm. that's where the prophets always are. And that's, the prophets usually know what's up and what's coming. Yeah. So uh, yeah, look to the margins, listen to the weirdos. They're the ones who mm. um, have a sense that God's busy making something new and they're the ones telling us to make a path through the wilderness. So yeah, it's both exciting and yeah. scary, but I don't, I try not to make too many predictions because I really don't know. Well, personally, I'll, I'll just say thanks, Rachel, for using your voice, uh, to be a, a critical agent. Uh, I know the, the common kind of pushback defense that we get, I've got all the time is like anybody who's being a critical voice is trying to kill the church and attack the church. And, uh, 
And so I just want to say, like, I think that what you're doing in your work and taking the risk of saying the uh, the uncomfortable, uncommon things is if the church in America is going <laughs> to go through some sort of reform and come out of this on the other side, like, I think voices like yours are part of the reason why. So oh, thanks. thanks for everything that you're doing. Well, that means a lot. And thanks for creating environments like this one where we can talk about it, like, kind of relax and let our guards down and just really talk. That's desperately needed. And I'm thankful for it. Thanks, Rachel. Definitely have to have you on again. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, that was really, really helpful. And that's sort of what I've always gotten from Rachel since I discovered her a few years back. Really just articulating, I guess, this experience that I've had. And I know lots of other people have had. So it was really fun. Yeah, totally. I think it's part of what she's so good at is just being brave to express and articulate feelings that a lot of other people are feeling and uh, making people feel less crazy, which is, I think, something that's really uh, honorable and important. I know for me, one of the things that came up first when I was reading through Inspired and then in this conversation that I'll be thinking about for a long time. It's that idea of, as she points out, the Bible can be interpreted in a litany of different ways. You can pick and choose to support whatever ideology you want to support. And the result is, as, as she uh, mentioned later on in the conversation, that one really important filter, and perhaps the most important filter, is whether or not the theology drawn from your particular interpretation oppresses people you know, whether it's liberating or whether it's oppressive. And I think that to me is kind of putting a finger on what seems to be at the center of a lot of the division and disagreement in uh, Christianity, at least in the circles that I swim in. And it's kind of what I, what I asked Rachel is to some of us, we want to say, Hey, we need to make sure that our interpretation is good and just and doesn't hurt anybody. But then there's this whole pushback that's saying, you don't have it within you as a human being. You do not have the capacity to even know what is good and just. And so who do you think you are to try to apply that filter? Or just that that that's even the wrong uh, way to approach the Bible, that you shouldn't be thinking through how is my interpretation of the Bible actually impacting the world and what is the fruit that it's leading to. You should just be reading this thing, plain reading, and whatever it says, you do that. But what's missed there is that, like Rachel said, everyone is coming to the Bible with their own bias. It's a myth that we can just read the Bible plainly without bringing our own bias to it. Yeah, right. And so I think one response, and I think it's one that I'm pretty convinced of, is that one of the only safeguards against that reality, that undeniable reality that we are all biased, and there is no such thing as a perfectly unbiased, plain reading of Scripture— is that we have to take responsibility for the effects, the consequences of those thoughts. And, and as Rich said, we have to make sure they're not oppressing people. But that just seems to be one way of articulating uh, one of the great divides in different Christians today is those that insist on that kind of ethical filtering and those that insist that we aren't capable of doing that ethical filtering, that we don't actually know what's good or what is just. So it honestly, I think it just creates two worlds which have entirely different ideologies of what we're capable of as humans, with how to approach the Bible, with what to do with the thing. You know, so I think her book and her work is just trying to draw that out and get people to think more carefully about some of these oversimple ideas that we can just like read the Bible, take it literally, and everything 
that happens from that will be good. So anyway, I, I just think one big takeaway is that this uh, conversation, what Rachel's bringing up is, is really putting a finger on something that we're all going to be wrestling with for a long time, which is just how differently so many of us are thinking and how differently we see the world and we see our own selves in the world and what we're capable of. And really where that shows up perhaps the most is the way that we approach the Bible and what we think we're supposed to do with it. And so we're going to continue having those conversations. This show is for you. Um, We're with you on this journey. And Rachel's work is so helpful. Go check out her books. Go check out her new book, Inspired. And you can follow her on Twitter, at Rachel Held Evans. And we're going to have many more conversations working to give this Bible, give God back to you, and show more helpful and beautiful ways to think about this thing. We'll see you next week. Peace. Peace.